Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. According to the police officer I spoke to, they went through a list of questions in order to ascertain whether or not she was safe and determined that she was okay to be on her own on the streets of Victoria, barefoot in November, and they left her there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. You are listening to Emma Filipoff is Missing, a series by The Nighttime Podcast. Filled with mystery and heartbreak, this series will be as much about the strength of a mother's love as it will be about the fragility of the human mind. Over the course of an eight-episode series, we're going to explore the disappearance of 26-year-old Emma Filipov, who was last seen by the police officers who left her standing barefoot on a busy intersection in Victoria, British Columbia, on a cold night in November of 2012. For the last seven years, Emma's story has been the focus of investigation by people approaching it from all sides. The police, the private investigators, the armchair detectives, journalists, and of course, nearly endless podcasters. The story of Emma Filipoff is easily among Canada's most often discussed missing persons cases. Now, despite all the work done related to Emma's disappearance, none of it has brought us any closer to finding her. And as I said, many have tried. But there is one person whose efforts have been simply staggering. In fact, even if one were to compile all the investigators' and storytellers' work, it would pale in comparison to that of the woman who has dedicated her life to solving the mystery that surrounds Emma's disappearance. I'm referring, of course, to Emma's mother, Shelley Filipov. Tragically, Shelley seemed to be just beyond arm's reach of Emma, in the days leading up to her disappearance. From Shelley's point of view, it all starts with a series of disturbing phone calls from Emma requesting help with some vague personal crisis. After Emma goes back and forth on if she would like her mother to fly to Emma's city of Victoria, British Columbia to support her, Shelley begins to realize that something is seriously wrong, and she decides to make the trip anyway, hoping simply to check on her daughter's well-being. In a cruel twist, Shelley arrived in Victoria on November 28, 2012, the last night Emma was seen and the night she was reported missing. As we will soon hear, Shelley Filipov has been on a relentless search for her missing daughter ever since. Shelley Filipov is following up on every lead, desperately searching for her daughter Emma missing since November 28th. Emma moved to Victoria from Ottawa in September 2011. In the days before she went missing, Shelley got a number of calls from her distraught daughter, asking her to come out and help her move back to Ontario. But within hours, Emma would call back, telling Shelley not to come. But mother's intuition told her she needed to. Without telling her daughter, Shelley boarded a plane. When she got to Victoria, Emma was gone. She'd left just hours earlier. I personally became aware of this case after watching the CBC-produced documentary, Finding Emma. I happened upon it nearly by accident, flipping through the channels on a quiet Sunday night. But before I even realized it, I had found myself drawn into Emma's story, and I wanted to learn as much as I could. As far as why I became so interested in this story, it's hard to say, but I'm sure a lot of it had to do with Emma. It was something about her that reminded me of many friends that I have. 
And then there was her mom, Shelley. On screen, she seemed so genuine and relatable. But on top of that, at the time that I was first watching the documentary, I was a new dad, and the thought of being in Shelley's shoes was just something I couldn't even imagine. These feelings within me left me unable to look away from the case. I wanted to understand all I could about Emma and about the circumstances that relate to her disappearance. And that's really where this series started. With a need to understand how people like the ones I know and love can find themselves in this unimaginable situation. And the first step towards this goal was connecting with Emma's mother, Shelley, and inviting her to share her story with listeners of Nighttime. And that's what we're going to get into shortly. Tonight, on this episode of Nighttime, we will begin the Emma Filipoff is Missing series by speaking with the force behind the search for Emma, her mother, Shelley Filipoff. Well, Emma's personality is is simply lovely. Uh, she's uh, compassionate. She's kind. She's creative. She's talented. She's intelligent. She's funny. Um, people are very drawn to her because she just has that type of personality that makes you want to get to know her. Um, she's an animal lover. She's an advocate for the underdog. Um, she's just an all-around lovely person, and I know that sounds like a mother speaking, and it is a mother speaking, but people that uh, know uh, Emma, who have even just met Emma briefly, become quickly aware of exactly what this young woman has to offer the world. And it seems like everybody who met her and got to know her was was drawn to her. Why do you think it is that, that people are so drawn to Emma? She draws people to her because she's non-judgmental. She takes you for for who you are at face value. She doesn't have expectations. She doesn't set expectations upon you. Uh, she doesn't want you to be somebody you're not. And people feel at ease with someone who knows that they're not being judged when they meet someone new. And a lot's been said about her uh, her interest in art, being a, a writer and a photographer. Could you just talk about about her interest in art and how that developed over the years? Well, Emma was always interested in art. She always... She was always doodling and, and uh, drawing, and of course her father is an artist, so um, it attracted her even more. Um, but we didn't actually see any uh, a lot of artwork coming from Emma until she hit her teenage years, and then she really started developing her creative talents and, and became interested in photography as well. Interesting. Uh, prior to Emma moving to, to Victoria, can you just describe where she was at in her life, like when she was living in, in Perth for that period of time? Yeah, she was living in Perth. She was living with her dad. She had come home from the uh, West Coast because she had uh, has a congenital knee problem and she wanted to see our her own orthopedic surgeon. So that was initially the reason she came home. Once she got home, uh, she realized she wanted to stay around for a while, which she did. So she uh, let go of her position in uh, Campbell River, where she was a chef at one of the local pubs. And um, so she stayed in Perth, and uh, she essentially just hung out. She did a lot of drawing, a lot of painting, a lot of photography, spent time with friends that she hadn't seen for a long time, and uh, that kind of thing. Great. And now, can you describe Emma's decision to, to move to Victoria? And, and maybe as well tell me about when she initially arrived, what she was doing there and what, what her plan was. Well, her plan was to return to the West Coast. She loves the West Coast. Um, so her plan eventually was to return. And she really debated. She wasn't sure where on the West Coast she would go. She knew she would go to BC. She didn't want to go back to Campbell River. So she just I, I think kind of arbitrarily chose Victoria. Um, and she went without a job. Uh, she went in the hopes of finding something when she got there. Was she, was she in touch with her friends and family back home from in, while she was in Victoria? And can you talk about the type of communication her friends and family and yourself would have had with her while she was living in, Vic, in Victoria? 
Well, was Emma was primarily in touch via email. Uh, she was not a believer in uh, in in technology per se, so she absolutely refused to have a cell phone. So she didn't have a cell phone, which made it very very difficult for her to get a hold of us uh, by phone. She'd have to use a pay phone to call. So she tended to stay in touch via emails. Um, so she emailed friends and she emailed us, and I'd say she emailed me at least once a month. Um, so her emails were always light and airy. Some were even cryptic, many of them poetic. Um, not your standard email. Um, when I look back on them now, I see that there were messages there that I would never have been able to pick up on at the time. Um, I see them now, but um, at the time they just seemed poetic and somewhat cryptic, somewhat cryptic, but very, very beautiful and very poetic and and very happy. Uh, the tone of, of every email was, was uh, happy, definitely happy. And now, can you, can you tell me about what initially led you to, to be concerned for Emma while, while in Victoria? And, and what I'm looking at here is the phone calls that she made to you, as well as your discovery of her standing, staying at the Sandy Merriman. Well, I received a phone call on a, on a Friday evening. In, well, Friday night late, actually. It was almost early Saturday morning. It was around midnight. And Emma called, and she was in tears and telling me that she wanted to come home. She was very distressed. So I didn't I didn't want to further distress her by asking her questions, so I didn't ask her what was wrong. I just said, well, absolutely, you know, of course you can come home. Uh, what I'll do is I will go in, um, to my laptop and book you uh, a need ticket, and it'll be waiting for you at the airport and just hop on a plane and then come home and we'll, you know, just... Uh, we'll meet you at the airport, and, and then we'll we'll go from there. And, and she cried even harder, and, and seemed to become more distressed, and and asked that uh, that I come to Victoria to help her come home. She said she wasn't uh, in any shape to travel on her own, or, or or to pack up her things and come home on her own. So that was the initial phone call. So I said that I would book a ticket then. Um, and that I would be there within roughly 12 hours. I figured by the time I booked my ticket, organized things here and packed and got to the airport. I'm an hour from the airport. I figured I said, it'll be a good 12 hours, but I will be there on Saturday for sure, Emma. So that seemed to appease her a bit, and, and we talked a little bit longer, and, and I said, you know, let me know when when you want to hang up, whenever you're ready to and this conversation, I said, if you want to stay on the phone all night, that's that's fine. Um, so she calmed down a little, somewhat. She was still sobbing, but she calmed down and she said, okay, so I will see you for sure tomorrow. And I said, absolutely, um, I'll see you tomorrow, which was Saturday. Saturday morning, mid-morning, I got a phone call from Emma. Again, distraught, but not, not in tears so much. Uh, saying, I've changed my mind, I was just having a bad day, I think I can handle things on my own, I think I can cope, please cancel your ticket and don't come. So I proceeded to cancel my ticket. Uh, by now I'm, I'm extremely concerned. I'm, I'm talking to the other members of, the, of our family and, and they're urging me to, to respect her, her last wish, which was for me not to go. I said, you know, Emma's very private, and if she's changed her mind, there's a reason for it, so don't force yourself on her. So I thought, okay, so I canceled my ticket. And then that Saturday night, I got another phone call, and it was Emma, and she again, she was very distressed, and, and it was, please come, please come and help me. I need help. I want to come home. So I went through the same routine. I booked a ticket and and packed, and I got a ticket ready for Sunday. And again, I told her, you know, I would be roughly 12 hours to get there and um but um by then monday i received another phone call jordan and it was don't come it was i'm uh, i'm going to figure this out i'm going to be fine but she, at no time did she sound as if she were fine mm -hmm. she was saying she was fine but at no point did i think oh yes yes she's pulling it together at no point did i think that um 
the last phone call. So we we played phone tag, and again, I talked to the other family members. I talked to her siblings. I talked to her dad, and and they said, you know, you've got to you've got to respect your privacy. And her last wish is always, don't come. So, mom, you need to listen to that. It really get went against the grain for me. It went against my gut instinct, but I put a lot of stock in in my other children, and in knowing their sibling probably better than. I might know her, mm-hmm. so I I followed their advice. By Wednesday morning, I had received the last phone call, so that would be the last time I spoke to her. And she said, "Don't come today. Don't come, Mom. Not today." And that was the last time I spoke to her. I flew out that day and arrived in Victoria. Um, I arrived at the uh, airport at nine o'clock. Um, 9 p.m. by the time I got my luggage and, and got a taxi and got organized, I arrived at the uh, Sandy Merriman Shelter for Women, which is something I had discovered during one of the phone calls that that's where she was staying. How did you discover that she was staying at the shelter? Well, um, one of the phone calls was definitely from a phone booth because she reversed the charges, so I didn't think anything of that. And as I said, she never had a cell phone. But then the subsequent calls came from the the name that would come up on on call display was Sandy Merriman. And the first couple of times, I assumed that that was someone's name and that that was the person that she was living with. So it didn't. At first, it didn't occur to me to think anything of it, but on the I think it was on the third call, I thought, I'm going to call this number back and see if I can get Emma and see if I can talk to her without having her call me. So when I called, uh, they answered, and they said this was the Sandy Merriman Shelter for Women, and I was just in shock. I didn't have any idea that Emma had been staying at a woman's shelter. Um so I was I was overwhelmed. I I was really overwhelmed to find out that that's where she had been staying. Mm-hmm. And when you arrived at Victoria, I understand you went directly to the to the Sandy Merriman shelter. Can you tell I me? Did. Can you tell me about your arrival there and in in how that played out? Well, I arrived at eleven p.m. They let me in and I explained who I was, and they said, "Oh, we're oh we're sorry, Emma's not here," and I was very disappointed, but I wasn't overly surprised. Really, my feeling was it was one of disappointment. Um, so I said, oh, any idea where she is? And they said, no, she's missed curfew. She's missed the chance at her bed, so she's probably staying at a friend's house. So again, I was I was extremely disappointed. Um, but then the, uh, the supervisor suggested that we go up to her office and that we talk. So then some bells went off, and I thought, okay, so it's not just the fact that Emma's staying over at a friend, something else is going on here. So she took me to her office, and she went on to explain that Emma hadn't been herself for the last two weeks, and uh, they had been extremely uh, concerned about her, and I explained about the phone calls, and they said, yes, we were aware of those, because all but one or two she had made from their office. And it required a staff member to be present in the office when someone was making a phone call. So they overheard the phone conversations. Um, So we talked for about an hour. They gave me some description. They were very cautious. They were very aware of the privacy laws, so they weren't willing to tell me much. Um, But by midnight, the supervisor thought that it would be a good idea to call the police and have her considered uh, a missing person. Then a lot of bells went off, George. Then I thought, okay, they know a lot more than they're letting on, and there's something seriously wrong here. Now, um, before we get to the the events of of the the day of Emma's disappearance, can you describe the the first days and the the initial search that you started? Things such as where you were staying and the type of methods you were using to find information on Emma. Well. Fortunately, there was uh, a hotel directly across the street from the shelter, so I went over there around 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and they had a room for me, so I asked for a room that overlooked the shelter, and they had one, so I took that one at the front of the hotel so that I could watch the shelter, and I thought I could actually sit on the bed and watch the, the front door of the shelter, and I thought, well, I could just watch. I could sit here 
tonight and watch to see if she does show up. Even though I've been told that she had missed curfew and she wasn't entitled to a bed, I thought she still might show up, and surely to goodness they would let her in. They wouldn't just turn her away. So, but no such luck, she didn't turn up. So uh, the next day I decided that I would just start walking the streets. Uh, again, I was I, I was uh, really surprised about um, assigning her um, the missing person uh, title. It just never occurred to me, Jordan, that things were this bad. So I just started walking the streets. I found out from, I went back to the shelter and asked them if they knew of, of some of Emma's favorite spots, and, and they were willing to tell me that. So I started walking the streets and walking down different areas, walking along the beach, going to places, to the marina, for instance, going to all the places uh, where Emma was known to hang out, like the public library and those places. So I did that for the first couple of days, then I realized that um, it wasn't going to be a simple matter of turning a corner and seeing her. So I had no photos of her. Um, so I went back to the shelter and asked them if they had any photographs. And by luck, they had one because one of the things that they do is take a picture of, of someone when they come in. So I had one picture, so I made up a, a poster of that one picture, and I started postering the uh, the city of Victoria. I just plastered the city with posters. Unfortunately, the first ones we had were black and white, and, they, and the picture didn't look like Emma at all. I mean, she looked scared, and uh, it just didn't look like her at all. But that's that's all I had, and I knew that I had to start getting posters up as fast as I could. That gave bought me some time, and then I emailed and called people and said, you know, can you uh, forward me any recent photographs you have? These are her friends I'm talking about. Any recent photographs you may have of her uh, as recent as possible, preferably in color, et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden, these pictures started pouring in, so then I could update the poster, and, and every few days we could change. We should make the poster better until we finally came up with one that we were happy with, and that was the one that we used. And I say we because it didn't take me very long for me to to gather a small group of of, uh, of volunteers who were w- willing to help post through the city. Great, and you know I, I understand you were back and forth on the shelter, uh, trying to find ways to get information from the shelter staff. Can you talk a little bit about your your technique of getting information despite the Privacy Act? Well, the technique was was. Uh, fairly straightforward because I didn't have to put on an act. I was a mother in distress. Um, tears came easily. So I would go and, and, and talk to them and, and ask them what they thought might have happened and and slowly but surely ask them, you know, well, what do you mean she changed in the last little while? And they say, well, we're not supposed to talk about it. And I say, well, just off the record, if you could just give me an example of how she might have changed. Don't be specific. Don't give me, you know, times or dates. But I was, uh, I think I, I think I came across as the person I was, which was a very vulnerable, distressed mother. And I broke down in tears every time I went to the shelter. And I think that... Uh, um, a number of the frontline shelter staff, I think they were compassionate enough that they felt that they, they just needed to help me. So they did divulge things that I found out later that they should not have, and I think they were chastised for it. I know I was chastised for going to the shelter, and I was told to, that I was no longer welcome there. Um, but I found out a lot about her mental state through the frontline staff at the Merriman Shelter. At this point in our discussion, Shelley is describing the early days of her search for Emma. While staying in a hotel room across the street from the women's shelter and using a nearby library as a sort of war room, Shelley will be joined by a group of locals who volunteered to assist her in the search for Emma. And, of course, for whatever breadcrumbs she may have left behind. And there were quite a few. As we will soon hear, the biggest problem with these breadcrumbs is that they seem to present more questions than they do answers. But one thing is for certain, 
something strange was going on in Emma in the days leading up to her disappearance, and it all seemed to boil over on her last known day. In the upcoming segment of our discussion, we'll walk through some of the things she since learned about Emma's activity on November 28th. We'll start with Emma's morning visit to a downtown Victoria 7-Eleven convenience store. Early in the search for Emma, Shelley had learned that Emma purchased a prepaid credit card just after 8 a.m. on the morning of her disappearance. And fortunately, the 7-Eleven had the surveillance footage to prove it. When we get back to the discussion with Shelley, she'll describe that footage. So she went in there and she purchased this prepaid credit card, um, which, you know, in retrospect seems odd because she had a debit card, but anyhow, she purchased it. Um, but then she was very reluctant to leave the store. If you look at the footage, she she walks back and forth and she peers out and she holds her hands up to the, to the, the glass so as to block out any shadow so that she can see outside. And... Um, it, it it looked as if she was watching for somebody, but she, her her actions, her her movements, her gestures were very were very nervous, seemed very tense. So I don't think she was waiting for a friend. I think she was concerned that there was somebody out there. That at least that's what I got from looking at the footage. I mean, later on um, when I discovered more about her mental state, then it could have been her own way of thinking. Um, but definitely. Um, the vibe that I got from Emma in the store was that she was very, very nervous and she was afraid to go back outside. Mm-hmm. Now, the the next bit of footage that was been shared is is at 5.54 p.m. when she returned to the same 7-Eleven now to purchase the prepaid cell phone. Can you describe that? And again, she... Well, the one thing that stands out is she's buying a prepaid cell phone. She's never owned a cell phone in her life, so that makes me really question why she was buying a cell phone. Um, And again, she's extremely hesitant to leave the store. She paces back and forth, and she looks out, and she holds her hand up again to block out shadows so that she can really see who's out there. Um, Again, very tense, almost jittery in her movements. In her gestures, I, for for me, knowing Emma the way I know her, Emma has a very uh, fluid way of moving. She moves well. She was a dancer, and she moves like a dancer. Uh, and she certainly wasn't moving like a dancer that night. She was she was she was hesitant. She she seemed scared to me, Jordan. She seemed she seemed afraid. The next activity takes place about fifteen minutes later. It's the it's the cab ride at uh, at six ten p.m. Can you right. just, can you just describe to me uh, that course of events, starting with her getting in the cab and ending with her leaving the cab? Okay. Well, to the best of my knowledge, uh, she hails a cab. She gets in the cab and she asks to go to the airport. Um, she proceeds to ask the cab driver how much it'll cost to go and he said that it would be $60 so she said oh that's too much I can't afford it well we since know that she got a prepaid credit card for $200 and that she had money in her bank account so she could in fact afford it but she says she can't so she asks him uh, to drop her off but what's very bizarre is that she wants to stay in the car and go around the block and have him drop her off at exactly the point where he picked her up, which is, is kind of bizarre. Um, and then when when he gets to that point uh, where he had picked her up, she doesn't want to get out of the car. She asks if she can stay and sit for a little while in the car. And he says, well, you know, I've got to work. And said, oh, if I could just stay with you, if I could just sit here for a few minutes. And then she reacts to the radio. Now, I don't know if it's the the radio or his uh, taxi uh, radio system, but she hears something coming out, uh, some sounds coming out, and she asks him what that is. Um, Again, as if there seems to be some type of paranoia at play here. After a couple of minutes, he insists that, of course, that she has to get out, and she does, and then she does get out of the taxi. 
And now, from the time she she left the cab, only a short amount of time would pass before she would encounter the acquaintance uh, who would ultimately get the police involved. Can can you describe her, her meeting with with this acquaintance up to the point that he notifies the police? Okay. Well, the acquaintance is uh, a young man uh, named Dennis Quay, and he ran into Emma, and was really happy to see her. He hadn't. He only. He had only met her once. Again, there's an example of of how people love to to be around Emma because he had only met her once in the library, and yet when he saw her, he told me that he was just so excited to see her. Um, he said at first she didn't seem to recognize me, and and he found that odd because they had spent hours poring over books on uh, on Japan because um, she was interested in traveling to Japan. I believe he was interested in, interested in learning Japanese. So they, even though they'd only had that one encounter prior to this one, uh, they had spent a number of hours together. So he was really surprised, and he said she was just so so different than the Emma that he had met and spent time with in the library. So... He just kind of stayed with her and, and tried to engage her in conversation. And eventually she asks him if he would walk with her. And he said, yes, of course. And uh, so they were, they spent some time walking together. Uh, there was some construction outside the Empress Hotel, apparently, um, at that time. And um, they were going to walk past the Empress in that direction, but when they get to the construction, the alleyway that's been constructed with a roof over it, uh, Dennis said that Emma was very afraid to enter, even though it was well lit, that Emma was very afraid to enter into this um, makeshift um, walkway, and she put her hands out as if to feel or something, and um, didn't want to walk, and ended up not walking, didn't want to walk through it. Um, so he continued with staying with her and, and uh, talking to her as much as he could. She was pretty non-responsive, he said. So after about an hour of time spent with her, he decided there was something seriously wrong. He ruled out drugs. I'm not sure what he based that on, but he said, he said definitely, I didn't think that she was stoned, that she was on drugs. He said, I thought there was something else really wrong. So that's when he called. He didn't have a cell phone himself, so he stepped into a little restaurant on the corner and uh, used their phone and called 911. And then he waited, watching her. He didn't go back to her. Um, I, he didn't actually say it, but I think he didn't want her uh, to associate him with having called the police because he stayed across the street. He said, I kept an eye on her to make sure she didn't leave and to make sure the police did actually show up. Uh, but he didn't go back to her. He just watched from across the street and made sure that she was okay and waited till the police arrived. And when the police arrived, he left. Okay. And now, can you tell me uh, what you know about the police's involvement, like starting with the police arriving and ultimately leaving leaving Emma there? Well, I know little of what took place. I know a little bit more than apparently I'm supposed to know because one of the police officers was a little more forthcoming. Uh, they arrived, I believe, there at about 7.17. And according to the police that I spoke to, the police officer I spoke to, they went through a list of, of, of questions that are customarily asked when they face a situation like this, when there's someone that seems in distress or is on the street, as Emma was. So they claimed that they asked all the right questions in order to ascertain whether or not she was safe. Um, I was told that they asked her questions such as, uh, are you suicidal? Or do you feel that you're going to harm yourself? Um, do you feel that you're going to harm someone else? Um, have you eaten? Do you have a place to stay? And apparently she just nodded or shook her head that she didn't actually speak. Um, they spent about 45 minutes with her and determined that she was okay to be on her own out in uh, on the streets of Victoria, barefoot in November, and uh, they left her there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As the two Victoria police officers leave the scene and leave Emma still standing in front of the Empress Hotel, there would never be another confirmed sighting of her. What Emma said to police or what led to their decision to not intervene is unknown. Despite her great effort, Shelley has been unable to access detailed information from a police report. And in another cruel twist in the story, when you compare Shelley's timeline with that of Emma's on November 28th, you will see that Shelley's flight arrived just three hours after Emma was questioned by Victoria Police. And now, with a basic timeline of Emma's last day discussed, our conversation will move to discussing some leads Shelley happened upon and some persons of interest that came to the surface. Just like our discussion of Emma's activity on November 28th, we'll begin discussing the leads by starting off with that same prepaid credit card that Emma purchased the morning of her disappearance. It turns out, in the weeks after Emma's disappearance, a man was arrested after attempting to use the card to buy cigarettes. The, the first lead I'd like you to hear you discuss is the prepaid credit card that Emma had purchased prior to her disappearance. Can you just tell me about how it how it turned up and, and what came of that lead ultimately? Okay. Um, again, this is somewhat of a bizarre uh, story, and I have conflicting stories. I was told by the police that the card was found on the side of the road, by a man who went into, I believe, a gas station and used it to buy uh, cigarettes. Now, the police gave me a very specific location as to where this card had been found, that, that this gentleman had apparently told them exactly where he had found the card. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I believe it was in Langford, but it was outside of Victoria, not in the city of Victoria. And this is what the police had told me, and that was on December 5th that he used the card. When he actually found it, I'm not sure, but he used it on December 5th. You can imagine my elation when I found out that the card had been used. I assumed it had been used by Emma. I was ecstatic until I found out that it was somebody else. Um, But what's really, really odd about um, this part of the puzzle, Jordan, is that the person who found the card's name is Mike, and Mike phoned me. Mike actually phoned me and he phoned me on three different occasions. And the first time he called, he could barely speak. He said, I'm just really scared. I'm really nervous to be calling you, to be talking to you. I don't know if I should be. Um, So all I'm going to do is just let you know that I'm Mike and I'm the person who found the card. Second time he calls, we have a similar conversation, only he says a little bit more. Um, But again, not divulging any any actual information, except that he says, he said, what the police have told you about where I I found the card is not true. That's not where I found the card. Third conversation, he says to me, he says, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I don't know where I found the card. He said, Mike, the police gave me a specific location. He said, well, I don't know why they gave you a specific location because I don't even know where I found it. So I found that very puzzling, very bizarre. Um, you know, your, your natural instinct would be to, to believe the police. Uh, yes, this man's a recovering alcoholic. You could tell he was extremely shaky, extremely nervous talking to me. But to make, to go out of his way to make three phone calls to me to tell me that that card was not where the police claimed it to be, I just found that a, a very strange, strange thing to have happen. And as far as this man using the, the, the card, I'm assuming he was investigated in some way? Yes, he was investigated. I believe he was polygraphed, um, and he was cleared. During your, your search for Emma, 
one of the things that came into play was was her extensive journals. Now I understand you use them to try to understand her activities leading up to the to her disappearance. Can can you can you talk about her journaling as well as what insight you gained from from the journals? Her journals, Emma's journals, were um, uh, many. <laughs> they were numerous. Emma was a very prolific writer. She had thousands of pages of uh, of journaling, of writing, short stories, all kinds of things, poems. Um, they were all very cryptic. Uh, they were all written very poetically. Uh, it was very hard to um, really understand uh, what her intention was in some of her writings. Um, her actual uh, her physical, her penmanship, uh, sh- uh, her manuscript writing was was an art form in itself. So very, very difficult to get through these hundreds and thousands of pages. Um, but what I gained from reading her journals was that um, my assumption, based on on what I read, what I read into them, was that she was not well uh, emotionally. There were a lot of things that she said in her journals that indicated to me that she was really not well, that she had perhaps had an emotional, psychological breakdown. Now, one of the things that came up specifically in the Finding Emma documentary that Fifth Estate created was the the idea that one particular piece of writing may possibly be a suicide note. Can can you just not describe the writing, but describe your thoughts on that writing and in, in what you think of the theory that that could be a suicide note? Well, when I first came across it, um, I panicked and assumed it was a suicide note. Um, But then after I read it a couple of times, I thought, I don't know so much that it's a suicide note as a last will and testament, um, which does not mean, does not indicate suicide. Um, I think she just wanted to be sure that um, certain people received certain things that were precious to her. Uh, I was really torn on that, Jordan. Uh, I mean, it says, you know, uh, from dead Emma, which is, a, you know, an odd, an odd approach. Um, but I wouldn't say, I didn't, I didn't carry that in my heart as a suicide note. At first it startled me and it scared me, but I didn't carry that around in my heart and I don't now as a suicide note. I think it was more... I think it was intended more to be a last will and testament for future reference. And a, and a lot of young people um, nowadays actually do. And I, I've urged my uh, other children to have, uh, have living wills because you don't know, you know. So I don't feel at this point, I don't feel that it was a suicide note. To everyone, from Dead Emma. Hello. I figure someone will be on this computer at some point and will read this. Okay, so I'm dead. Floating about on energy or not, watching dying stars, reviving stars, dreaming milky dreams and shadow dancing on your timelines or whatever. Good luck, every heart. I love you. M. Now, knowing all that you do now, can, can you talk about your opinion on Emma's mental health in leading up to her disappearance? And aside from her journals, maybe give me a, an idea of what led you to, to this conclusion. Well, aside from the journals, um, I was able uh, to get a great deal of information, actually, from Sandy Merriman uh, Woman Shelter. I was relentless. I went back over and as I said, I went back over and over again until I was told to cease and desist. Um, and they described some pretty bizarre behaviors. Um, and they said that uh, the behaviors had started roughly two weeks prior to the phone call starting, the phone calls to me starting. Um, and they they weren't specific in their description of how she had changed, but they said she's she has changed dramatically. She is no longer the Emma we knew. There was an Emma, and now there's a new Emma. 
and she is not at all. She carries no similarities to the Emma we know. Um, they describe things like her moving um, furniture out of the shelter onto the lawn. Um, they would move it back in, and a couple of days later, she would move it out onto the sidewalk. Eventually, she moved some of the furniture onto the courthouse steps, uh, all the while telling uh, the staff members that um, that she, there were voices that the furniture was talking uh, and saying things and bothering her, and she needed to get rid of it. Um, they described at one point that uh, they had actually become afraid of her. Now, to be afraid of Emma is um, unheard of. It was such a startling uh, comment. Um, I said, in what way? And they said, well, she just wasn't herself. She was just acting so odd that, that we didn't want to turn our backs on her. I asked if she had shown any signs of, of uh, violent behavior, and they said, oh, no, 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 none at all. Um, but yet they said that they had become afraid of, of her. And that was definitely not the case prior, about two weeks prior to that. So um, based on that, um, those descriptions of, of Emma's behavior, um, I think Emma uh, became paranoid schizophrenic, became a paranoid schizophrenic. I think that explains her paranoid behavior at the 7-Eleven. Um, I think it explains her paranoid behavior, not wanting to walk to the construction site. I think she had a had a break with reality. Now, as the, as your search went on and, and the leads began to dry up, can, can you tell me about your mindset and discuss your decision to return to return home to Ontario after your roughly two months in Victoria? Well, I wasn't prepared to come home, to be honest. But my family really urged me to. They were very concerned about Emma, of course, but they were also becoming very concerned about me and my state of mind. Um, so I, I, I set a date. I decided that uh, Emma had promised Bluefish, uh, Redfish Bluefish that she would return to work on February 1st, which was, they were a seasonal restaurant, which was the date that they had set to open. And she had promised that she would return to work. So I thought, well, I'm going to wait and see if she does show up for work, um, in which case I'll stay around. And if she doesn't show up for work, then I guess I will listen to my family and and, uh, and come home. Because, I mean, I had a, I had a son who was, I mean, he was an older teenager, but he was living alone in the house, uh, worried sick about his sister, worried sick about his mother, and he was living alone because my husband and I had separated. So he was in this big empty house trying to take care of the three dogs and the three cats and go to school and go to work and, and, and stay positive and, and, uh, and stay strong. So, um, my oldest daughter, um, and my ex-husband convinced me that I really needed to come home because of those reasons. So um, it was very difficult for me, Jordan. I felt like I was leaving her behind, and uh, but I felt that their reason, their reasoning, was valid. So I, I came back to Ontario. Despite Shelley ending her boots-on-the-ground search in Victoria, from her home in Ontario, she continued her search for Emma. During her time in Victoria, Shelley had relied on the local press to share her story and to drum up interest in the search for Emma. But at this point in Shelley's search, from home in Ontario, she took this technique to a new level. Anyone who's been following Emma Filipoff's case is well aware of the CBC-produced Fifth Estate documentary titled Finding Emma. This was yet another vehicle of awareness Shelley used. I asked Shelley for a behind-the-scenes look at how this production came together. In your your post-Victoria search, so with you now back in in Ontario, you, you 
petitioned CBC to cover Emma's Emma's case. Can you describe the steps in, in getting them interested and in getting the documentary made? Well, it was much less complicated than I had anticipated. Um, what I did was, I have a friend who works for CBC Radio in um, Fredericton, and um, I spoke to her and I said, you know, I've got to... I've got to get the story out, and I've got to get it out in a big way. Um, I'm thinking of the Fifth Estate or W5. And she said, well, I would go with um, Fifth Estate. She said, if I were you, I would write to uh, Lyndon McIntyre. She said he's the most compassionate uh, of the interviewers, of the journalists on the show. Um, he is probably your best bet to maybe kind of went over and have him become interested in the story. So uh, what I did, Jordan, was I just sat down and I wrote Lyndon McIntyre an email. And I tried to make it as as uh, as simple, as straightforward, and as compassionate and, and as urgent as I could. And I think it was within a day, um, he's in flight from somewhere flying into uh, Toronto and he responds to me, and he says, I, I'm just arriving in Toronto from a trip. Just give me a couple of days, and I'll be back in touch with you. And within a couple of days, sure enough, he was in touch with me, and he said, I'm more than interested in your story, and um, let's do it. And it was that simple. It was that simple. And I asked him why um, he was so quickly willing to to do a story on Emma and he said he said there was just something and I think I think it's because I described Emma and nobody can turn Emma down I think he was drawn to her and wanted and wanted that story out and that's and that's how simple it was and then from there on we worked on it wasn't Lyndon that actually it was um Mark Kelly who was the uh, journalist that actually uh, did the did the work but um, originally it was supposed to be Lyndon McIntyre, and he did a lot of the footwork ahead of time, and, and uh, he pushed it through. He pushed it through CBC and got it on the fifth estate. Now, uh, the, in the documentary Finding Emma, there seemed to be some suspicions directed towards Julian, the, the friend of Emma, who was said to have exhibited some stalking behavior. Just with a, with a brief summary, can you can you just tell me a little bit about what made Julian seem like he could potentially have been involved in her disappearance? Well, to be honest, to be honest, there are only a couple of things that really would lead uh, someone to um, think of Julian as, as a possible suspect in, in some way. Um, the fact that he moved to um, Victoria, um, a while after Emma had uh, had moved there, struck a lot of people, including myself, as very suspicious. He said he just arbitrarily picked um, a city on the West Coast, and then he just arbitrarily picked Victoria, and, and what a surprise to find Emma there. Well, it seems like an awful big coincidence to me. So that was the first thing that kind of alerted um, people to the fact that something didn't seem quite right. I mean, with all the places on the West Coast that he could have chosen, that he chose. I mean, Victoria's a small city. You know, if it had been Vancouver, you know, well, maybe. But, I mean, Victoria, I mean, it's, you know, it's a little island. Um, so that was that was something that drew uh, suspicion. And... Um, and then we uh, later on discover um, uh, Facebook messages that he had sent to my ex-husband trying to track Emma down, and in which he himself uses the word stalker. He said, um, you know, I want to apologize for having stalked your daughter. Um, that was kind of alarming. So those were the two main... Uh, reasons that Julian never came into play, or that, or he ever became um, a suspicious character. Um, and then I must admit that I found it odd that he was so uh, so quick. He was so quick to track me down. Um, 
I mean, how he knew I was in the city, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if there had been media coverage yet at that point, but he tracked me down very, very quickly, and he had never met me. And I was in the library on one of the computers because I knew that Emma spent a lot of time there, so I thought, I'm going to sit at a at a computer station and I can see the front door so I can watch for for Emma to come in. And I noticed this young man staring at me. And finally I got up and went over and I said, do you know me? Do I know you? Can I help you? And then he went on to introduce himself and explain who he was. And I found, I found that odd, Jordan. I found that odd that he was, that he had spent enough time looking at my Facebook page to be able to pick me out of a fairly large group of people sitting at computer stations, having never met me, in a city where you wouldn't expect to see me. I found that a little bit odd. So now the next thing I'm going to ask you about is the two leads that came from the Fifth Estate documentary. So that being the the photo of the girl at the coffee shop and the green shirt guy. So could, could you just describe both of those leads and just tell me what came of them? Well, the uh, the photo of the girl in the coffee shop was absolutely uh, overwhelming. It was a better it was a better likeness of Emma than some of the photos that we had of her, because I'm sure you've noticed that she's almost chameleon like that she is different looking in every single photo of her. Yeah, she changes her hair. She she cuts her bangs. She puts her hair on the side. She puts her hair up. She changes her uh, her dress style, whatever, and suddenly Emma looks like a completely different person. That person of that young that young woman in the coffee shop actually looked more like Emma than some of the pictures that we actually had of Emma. It was just when I saw that, I thought we found Emma. We found Emma. That's her. Didn't look like what she would wear, but I thought we. We found her, and I took the picture to my ex-husband and, and showed him, and he said, well, that's Emma. And he's an artist. I mean, he has an artist's eye, and he said, yeah, that's Emma. So then I put up on Facebook with the person, blah, 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 in the, the person in the photograph sitting at the coffee shop and, you know, dated and all that. Um, if you know who this person is, would you please come forward? And within a couple of days, Someone got a hold of me and gave me the name of the person in the photograph, and I asked that they put me in touch with her, and she assured me that it was her, and she sent me a number of photographs of herself. Now, oddly enough, she didn't look like Emma in any of them except for one. It required a profile picture for her to look like Emma. But it was really, really demoralizing because it looked so much like Emma that we thought it was Emma. Yeah. And and now the other lead and one that's still talked about all the time is is the green shirt guy. C- could you just describe who he is and, and how this played out? Okay, the green shirt guy. The green shirt guy haunts me. Um, the green shirt. We call him the green shirt guy for lack of a better name because he had a green T-shirt on. Um, he walked into a store in Vancouver, a store called Blitz, and it was a clothing novelty type store. And in his hand, he was crumpling up a poster, a missing poster of Emma, and and angry. He had an angry walk about him, and he had a, he had anger in his voice, and he said to the the owner. One of the owners who was at the cash register, he goes, he says, this is, I forget the exact words he used, but he said, this woman's not missing. Emma's not missing. Emma's my girlfriend, and she's not missing. She just doesn't want to have anything to do with her family and crumpled it up and just threw it at the, onto the counter at the cash. And then he proceeded to wander through the store, and he held out a piece of clothing and said, oh, this would fit Emma. Emma's really small. This would fit her. And then he turned around and walked out. They immediately called 911. Unfortunately, 911 took their sweet time getting to the store. And by then, the green shirt guy had long disappeared. He was long gone. So we've had him up on Facebook. We've done all kinds of things to try to track him down, and nobody has come forward willing to identify him. 
Uh, it's been suggested that we get a picture of him and, and, and po- post to Vancouver with his face, but I'm not sure of the legality of that. So we haven't done that. But nobody has come forward. And yet he's quite distinctive looking. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I would recognize him. Um, but he was angry. He was angry that there was this missing poster of his supposed girlfriend and that, in fact, that uh, she just wanted to be left alone. She just didn't want to have any interaction. She didn't want to have anything to do with her family. If you're still with me, Thank you for joining Shelley and I on this heartbreaking ride through what can only be described as a parent's worst nightmare. What we had heard during the discussion was a basic telling of the events and factors that surround Emma Philippoff's disappearance. And of course, all told from the perspective of Emma's mom, Shelley Philippoff. At this point, we're left looking at a multi-level mystery. Of course, the big question is where is Emma Philippoff? But then there are many secondary mysteries like what was happening in Emma's life before her disappearance. Was her crisis related to mental health, or was there a real threat? Who is the green shirt guy? And what is up with Julian, the young man who moved to Victoria shortly after Emma did and was said to have exhibited stalking behavior? Now, these are some big and important questions. So this series is a lot of work to do. In the next episode, we'll take our next step towards understanding the case by unpacking the conversation we just heard between Shelley and I. In the next episode of Emma Philippoff is Missing, we'll be joined by Tim and Lance, the hosts of the groundbreaking Missing Maura Murray podcast. She was probably suffering from some kind of manic episode, some kind of uh, psychotic break. But at the same time, I don't think you can discount abduction or murder or, or runaway for that matter. Um, but that guy, Julian, I think really needs to be looked at more. But he was looked into and he passed a polygraph test, right? So was. No, 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 no. I, I agree. Yeah, exactly. Um, when she's talking about how she's sitting there and she looks over and someone's staring at her and she actually had to make the move to talk to him as opposed to him walking over to her and saying, are you Emma's mother? And yet he recognized her out of the crowd. And he said he recognized her. From yeah. Facebook photos, I think is what yeah. she had said. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that, and when I saw his, uh, when I saw him on, on camera and he said, nope, that's an absolute coincidence. And everyone else is saying, I don't believe in coincidences, especially when it's a, a especially when it's a missing person, a missing attractive female, who do you always go to first? Yeah, the boyfriend or... uh, Boyfriend or the husband. Yeah. And with that, we will conclude this episode of the Nighttime series, Emma Philippoff is Missing. But before we wrap things up, I want to end with some thanks. A massive thank you goes out to Shelley Philippoff for taking the time out of her day to speak with me and for being so open about what must be an unimaginably painful topic to discuss. Shelley, your dedication to your daughter is truly inspiring. I only hope that my coverage of this case brings more awareness of your family's plight and in turn creates more supporters and advocates. I'd also like to thank CBC's Mark Kelly and the team that created the Finding Emma documentary. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I've added a link to where you can watch it for free as well as links to several other sites related to this episode in the show notes. Next, a big thank you to Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for this series. And lastly, the biggest thanks of all goes out to everyone listening. Without you, the sun would have surely rose on nighttime years ago. And for anyone out there who wants nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then for a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb a bit further down the rabbit holes than what you'll hear in the main episodes. You can join my Patreon and access the supporter content by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome some new members to the group. Jenna M. and Vincent B., I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me 
and by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And if you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and contact me on social media and let me know your theory on Emma Filipov's disappearance. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Somebody somewhere knows something. She didn't just disappear. She couldn't just vanish. Somebody has to know something, Jordan. Somebody has to know something. <laughs>